0: you Would and you have a Bible? Go ahead and turn to the book of Judges. Uh, we're going to be in chapters 14, 15, and 16 today. You know, often um, in, in the movies, when a writer is screenwriter's writing a story, the savior in the movie is a savage. I want you to think about movies like Gladiator, Braveheart. Three hundred, You could probably go on, but I can't because that's the, all the movies that I've seen. Um, that's kind of, a, kind of not a joke. Uh, There's a lot of truth in that. I don't, I don't watch a lot of movies. Um, I, I watch a lot of boring TV shows that are very predictable. And the hero always is a good cop who wins. That's the type of thing I like to watch. Uh, but often, what I, I do believe it's true that the hero in a story is a savage. That uh, you'll, you'll be in a time... Where it's hard times, and it's, it's hard times, and there is war. And in war, the leader who wins has to be able to do things that other men can't. They have to be able to go to, to, to depths of, of, of rawness, depths of courage, bravery. But they also have to have certain levels of savagery in order to win. So we, we see that uh, depicted in the movies so often. And today, we're actually going to see it in the Bible. Now, the Bible very, very often um, will paint a picture. And, and, and that picture will depict more than one situation. So let's, let's use the book of Hosea, uh, for instance, as an example. The book of Hosea, Hosea, Hosea goes and takes for himself a, a wife who is a prostitute. And he marries her, and she continually plays the role of the the harlot or the prostitute. She continually cheats on him. And what we learn when we, we read the book of Hosea is that it's actually painting a picture. Their life is an example of what Israel does. That Israel constantly plays the role of the prostitute and prostitutes herself out as a nation to foreign gods. But then when we back up and we read the scriptures, we see that also what it is doing is it's telling us who we are as a people. That so often in our hearts, as we've, we've given ourselves to, to, to God and we've, we've pledged ourselves, our, our faithfulness to him, that yet we go out and we play the role of the harlot. Well, this is, God's going to do the same thing today in the book of Judges with Samson. It's going to show us a picture of, this, is, this was Samson's life. This is what Israel did. And this is also what I do. The big truth today as we approach this passage in the Bible, the thing that I want us to walk away with is this. That Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. Now, that's a direct quote of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul said those words. But as we read about Samson today, we're going to see that he was a great sinner. And we're going to be tempted today to cast judgment on Samson and more than that, on the God of the Bible. To look at the story of Samson in chagrin and say, how could a good God do these things? But what we should see... Is that God is rich in mercy and rich in grace. And that we being sinners. Enslaved and oppressed. God sent his son Jesus to save us sinners. And, and Paul said himself. He goes I'm the foremost sinners. I'm the, the chief of sinners. We have the, the ability as humans the words of Jesus, to see the speck in someone else's eye without seeing the log in our own eye. And today as we we approach this text, as we approach God's word, I want us to, to see our sin. Last week, we started uh, this story of Samson. The book of Judges. I know we've got a lot of college students here who, who have been gone all summer. So uh, the book of Judges is this inner uh, inner. Inner kind of period of time between the leadership of Moses and then Joshua to Saul, uh, the first king, then David and Solomon as the kings go. So they're without kings, and they're without leaders, and God uses in this time judges. He raises up to free his people from the oppression of uh, di- different groups of, of Canaanites and Philistines, these different Am- Amicalites, these different groups. There are 12 judges, 6 major, 6 minor judges, uh, and Samson is our last judge. There's only going to be one more sermon after this one. That kind of is a a conclusion to the time and painting a picture of the arrival of the first king. And so we began last week in chapter 13, and we covered chapter 13. And this is what it says, chapter 13, verse 1. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, this would be the sixth time last week, the sixth time that the the author of Judges uses this statement. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Two more times it's going to be said that the Israelites did what was right in their own eyes. And so they're so far away from knowing God's commands, knowing God's statutes, that they just begin to do what was in, right in their own eyes. In the book of Judges, we see a cycle, much like we do in the rest of the Old Testament. There's this cycle that Israel has. Israel serves the Lord. They're faithful. They want to do what's right, but then they fall into sin and idolatry. Then they are enslaved, and then they cry out to the Lord. And then God raises up a judge. Israel is delivered. Israel serves the Lord. And they continue until they fall back into sin. But we've reached a place in the book of Judges where the depth of their depravity is so that they stop crying out to the Lord. They stop looking to the Lord for salvation, and they just accept their circumstances. They just begin to live like The the Philistines, to live like uh, the Canaanites, they they live like the people around us. They adopt their idols. They intermarry uh, with, with their women. They take on their worldview, their philosophy, if you will. They live like them. They live like the world. And so, God being rich in mercy, even though they're not crying out for it, God raises up a judge. And we really see the first one in Jephthah but we see it again here with Samson. And so, when we start reading verse 3, the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, behold you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, eat nothing unclean, for behold you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, and that's just like a really if you know the story of Samson, like that's a pretty key detail. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb and shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And so this is a, the, the Lord is saying, rather than you taking a Nazarite vow, I'm making you a Nazarite from birth and I'm going to raise you up. And it shows that, that this, is, this is prophecy from this angel to um, Samson's mother that from this moment... From the womb, that God shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. That God is moving and working. And so look at verse 24. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. And in that area uh, amongst the Israelites. the, The Lord's spirit was stirring. He was beginning to save. And so we read that and we think, all right, Things are about to get good. We're about to have a savior. And then enters Samson. So, Chapter 14, verse 1. Here we go. Samson went down to Timnah, and he ate at Timnah. He saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of the relatives or among all our people that you must go take a wife from uh, the the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Here's my first big idea is that God uses sinners for His glory and our good. That God uses sinners for His glory and our good. Now, my first question right off the bat would be, if God doesn't use sinners, would He use you? If God doesn't use sinners, who does He use? I mean, the truth is, there's only been one sinless man, and the name was his name was Jesus, and he was God's son, and yes, God used him greatly. But what we see throughout the history of the Bible and throughout the history of time is the hand and the movement of God in the lives of sinners. And here we see Samson is no different. We've talked a lot um, in, in, in the book of Judges and really, from the end of Joshua, Joshua said, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go take foreign wives, and, and you're going to marry them, and you're going to begin worshiping their idols. And so, we've talked about like why uh, God tells us not to intermarry. We, in the New Testament, we call it being unequally yoked, and God puts parameters on who the Christian ought to date, court, be engaged to, and marry. That they ought to date, like, you know, people who believe the same thing, who have the same faith, lest they be corrupted. But here what we see is that God is going to use his um, sin, his marriage, he's going to be used, use the sinner in order to begin saving the Israelites from the Philistines. Now, one of the things that we have to look at in the Bible, and things we have to reconcile in our mind, is how can a sovereign, good God, a God who's in control... A God who created the world by speaking it into being, who literally breathed the life into man. How can a good God use sin for his glory? Like, we have to reconcile those things. And what I would teach you is that the Lord, God, uses sinners. So so, so, therefore, by the, the very nature of using a broken, fallen man to reconcile them, uh, as he reconciles them to sin, uh, his good, and we know that it is the proclamation of the gospel that that saves that God has to use sinners. Therefore, he uses sinful circumstances. Circumstances that were born in sin, God redeems. God uses. So if you look at verse 4, for his father and mother did not know it was from the Lord, that's showing you that the Lord's hand is moving and working. Even though Samson is a sinner, God is going to use what he would do for his glory and the good of Israel. What that means for us is that God is going to use Samson ultimately for our good. That we the, these same principles would, would apply today. So verse 5. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah. And they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came towards him roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. You're going to see that multiple times. Just note that, that phrase. It's going, to, it's going to get weird. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. So, I want you to understand something. Right here is the first time in which he breaks his, it may, may not be the first time, but the first time recorded where he breaks his Nazarite vow. So he does this, but he does not tell his fathers or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and he talked with the woman as she was right in Samson's eyes. And so the implication here is that he takes her for marriage. So after some days, as he's taken her for marriage, I don't know why he didn't take her with her, he goes back for her. He returned to take her. And as he's going, he turns aside and he sees this carcass. And it's swarming with bees. And he goes in again with his vow... It was breaking his vow, and he touches this dead carcass. It's one of the things Nazarites could not do was was touch a, a, a dead animal, lest it be in a like in a Levitical kind of ceremonial process. And so he goes and he takes this honey, which man is that not so? Okay, the guy killed a lion with his bare hands. Now that happened here, right? You know about this right up here in. At Horsetooth, Lori State Park, there was a trail runner. He was running. He gets attacked by a mountain lion. He kills it with his bare hands, and he ends up in the news. Do y'all not know about this? This happened. Like, look it up. It was epic. Um, he's like, scratches on his face and on his arms. This dude was like a savage, right? But then you see the picture of the mountain lion, and, you know, it was like a, it's like a kitten. Um, it was small. This lion was young, too, but I'm thinking, like, we know that he was a savage, right? He, this was, this was the, 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 the same kind of thing, in a pit with a lion on a snowy day. I mean, this dude, was, this, this dude was tough. Not only that, most of us see bees. We go the other way. We want to put on a bee suit, get some smoke. He just goes and scoops up the honey, and he takes it. He actually gives it to his parents, which, which he doesn't tell them where it came from, which defiles them. So he's, he's breaking all sorts of stuff. He's just sh- saying, I don't care the things that the Lord has said. And that he's, he's just tough. And he goes, he scrapes it from, from the, the, the carcass. Verse 10, um, his father goes down to the woman and sent, they, they prepare a feast for him there uh, the way that young men used to. And they brought 30 companions with him. And so rather than like throwing the wedding feast, like throwing the party with the Israelites, doing things with his people, this is just as the, the Philistines have had infiltrated Israel. Now this is this is Samson infiltrating the Israelites. And so he's going, he's bringing these 30, 30 companions, these 30 friends. And he goes and he kind of makes a bet with them. He starts toying with them. He says, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And so uh, if not, you'll give me that. And so he's thinking, I'm going to get a new wardrobe out of this deal. Uh, this is going to be this is going to be awesome. So here's the riddle: Out of the eater comes something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. And so that's a pretty cool that's a pretty cool little riddle. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Uh, we we're amazed that, that the, as the translators translate, translated this from Hebrew, they still got it to sound so cool. Um, I don't know how much work that took, but they did a good job. Um, so his wife, on the fourth day, they, they come to his wife, the Philistines, and say, Entice your husband to tell you what the riddle is, or we're going to burn your father's house with fire. Um, you and your father's house with fire. Now, you, you'll see how that plays out in a minute. So, you're going to see right now, Samson, who's strong, who's able to kill a lion, um, he's actually quite weak. You're going to see this paradox about Samson. He's physically strong, but he's got major weak spots. He's got major flaws. And, um, in particular, it's women. It's lust. It's not his only ones. He's got other great ones we're going to see. He's a great sinner. Uh, but he, she, she kind of goes at him, Um, how much do you have to hate me to tell you this? She cries, she weeps. Um, She gets it out of them. Right before the deadline, on the seventh day, she gets it out of them. So he says, you know, the men of the city come, they sit before him on the seventh day before the sun went down, and they say, they answer. It's almost like they're on Jeopardy. Uh, Because they start with what is. What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? He gets mad. Here's his reply. If you'd not plowed with my heifer, you'd not have found out my riddle. That's, that's a bad way to talk about your wife. Um, I don't recommend anybody doing that at home. Don't, don't use that kind of language for your wife. And then you get verse 9, which, like, like there's some rhyming going on, right? And we, like, look at, we look at this in the Bible, and we're like, okay, this is, this is kind of a strange story. Here's where it gets strange. Listen to verse 19. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he went down to Ashkelon and he struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoils and essentially struck them down, killed them, took their garments and gave their garments to those who had solved the riddle. So here's how he fulfilled his, his betting debt. He killed 30 men, 30 of the Philistines, took their clothes and gave it to them. Samson's wife was given to so that then, in hot anger, it says he went back to his father's house. So he gets mad, he goes back to his father's house. The father-in-law thinks, okay, he hates my daughter, he doesn't like her. Mad at him, whatever that goes, he gives him to his companion who had been his best man. After some time goes by, um, it's a time of wheat harvest, Samson, being full of rage and wanting revenge, goes back down to, to take his... To take his wife, um, but her father would not allow her to go in because he says, I thought you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Here, take her younger sister. Have her instead. Samson ain't having nothing to do with it. He gets super mad. And so this is what he does he comes up with this revenge plan, and he goes and he catches 300 foxes. Now, I think that's hard. I don't know how he catches them. I don't know if he's just traps. I don't know if he runs them down. I don't know, but I think catching 300 foxes is, is hard. He does it. And then, this is what he does. This is his revenge plan. He, he basically takes them tail to tail, and he puts a torch between each pair of tails, and he sets fire to the torches, and he lets the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and basically burn it to the ground. And also the olive orches. So... You know, this isn't the only time this has been done. I don't know if you know this or not, but if you go to the, go to the island of Jamaica, there are, there are no snakes in Jamaica. And there, there, there were snakes, I'm sure, at some point there. But somewhere along the way, um, there were mongooses that were in, in warfare, that were set on fire and turned loose. And they ran through the cane fields burning the cane crops same thing this has happened in history it sounds like crazy to us that you'd set an animal on fire that's super sadistic It gets you put under the jail in fort collins um but human history's pretty nuts people are savages they do they, they they do crazy hard mean nasty things and so here it goes and so the story of samson continues it just gets worse this is not going to get better folks um The Philistines are super upset. They're mad. And they go, who did with it? Who did this? They come down. They point to him. Um, The Philistines, who threatened to burn the wife and her father if she did not tell, take the wife and the father and burn her and kill her. And so Samson, again, wants revenge. And so um, he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow so he beat the mess out of them, killed a bunch of them, he left and went to the rock of, of Adam. So he goes and he stays there. I mean, he gets mad, he goes and he hermits. So then the Philistines, they're like, man, this dude is out of control. He's lost his mind, dude's crazy, we've got to do something about him. He goes, they go to the Israelites. The Philistines go to the Israelites, they say to Judah, that would have been the tribe where they were. Um... We come up to bind Satan, uh, Satan, Samson, to do him. We need to bind Satan. That's probably what needs to happen. Um, to do him as he did to us. And so they basically work it out where the men of Judah, 3,000 men, go to Samson and say, Look, bro, you're out of control. Um, I get that we're enslaved here, but like at least, at least we're living. You're going to cause the death of all of us. Like we're turning you over to, to, to them. We're going to tie you up. And Samson's like, Huh all right, promise me you'll not hurt me. Promise me you'll not attack me. And um, they're like, no, we won't. So he allows them to tie him up. He takes them to him, and they get him up to, to Lehi. The Philistines come shouting to meet him. They're ready to take their guy. And then this curious thing happens again. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands he finds a fresh jawbone of a donkey, again breaking his vow, and he takes that jawbone and he strikes a thousand men. And then, being the renaissance man that he was, wrote a poem. With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I've struck down a thousand men. And as soon as he's finished speaking, he threw the jawbone out of his hand and he left that place called Ramoth Leah. Here's the thing I want you to see. Here's the next big idea. So remember that. God uses sinners for his glory and our good. And we read that story, and we never know, Samson was a sinner. More than a sinner, Samson was a savage. Here's the next big idea. Samson's strength was the supernatural work of God. We read the story, we often think about his hair, right? His hair is the key piece. If you know the end of the story, you know when they cut his hair, the Lord's power removes from him. But when we go and we read those verses, then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and the ropes came off and he took a job on of a donkey and he killed a thousand men, what we need to see is that that strength was a supernatural work of God. It was, it was miraculous. It wasn't, it wasn't just a strength that he had in and of himself. This wasn't a strength that came from uh, hitting the gym, drinking your protein shakes, and your pre-workout, whatever the cocktail thing that you do, like this isn't discipline that gave him the strength. This isn't genetics that gave him this strength. It was the supernatural uh, work of God that gave him that strength. The, the justice that was happening, the, the freedom from oppression that was happening, the, the judgment being put on the Philistines that was happening was a supernatural work of God. Listen to verse 18. And he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and said, You've granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the circumcised? And then God does another supernatural thing. And he he splits open the hollow place uh, that is Leah. And water came out of this rock. And he's done it again, right? So he drank and his spirit returned and he was revived. Here's your next big idea. Is that salvation is a supernatural work of God. You've granted this great great salvation by the hand of your servant. Samson recognizes right here that it is God working through him. That salvation was coming to Israel by God's power. It was God's supernatural work. It was God doing a great thing. I want you to think, you think about the, the, you know, any, any story in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. And you start thinking about the Old Testament and thinking about when the Israelites were able to escape from Israel. I mean, I'm sorry, Egypt. The Israelites, it was, the, it was the ten plagues, wasn't it? And you think about every one of those plagues being supernatural. Think about the crossing of the Red Sea. Literally. Supernatural work of God that salvation came when God did this supernatural thing and, and spread the waters of the Red Sea so that they could cross it. Think about the Israelites in, in the wilderness as the Lord provided uh, manna and quail eggs, and, and we see when they were thirsty, He split the rock and gave them something to drink. Think about the book of Joshua. Salvation would always come at God's supernatural work. You know, we struggle. We struggle with the supernatural. We, we, live, we live in a world... Um, you know, if we we're talking about a third world country, the, the politically correct way to say that is an underdeveloped country. And so they've not developed to the, to the place that we have. They don't have the technology that we have. and I mean, we have some pretty incredible technology. You know, we can um, get in a car and drive down the road without our hands on the steering wheel while we're on a little device in our hand emailing somebody across the world. Y'all don't email and drive at the same time? Oh, uh, oh, I don't have a Tesla either. I just have a, a, like a 09 Tacoma. Just got good knees. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's a j- mainly, mostly, kind of a joke. Um, we struggle with the, the supernatural because of the world we live in. L- literally, we suffer very little. What you think about it? If, if you, you get sick, you don't have to wait till Monday morning. To, to go to the doctor. You don't have to wait for an antibiotic to come in. You, I mean, literally, 9, 9 p.m. on a Saturday night, you you go to the little clinic and you, you, you get this thing and the doctor knows what's going on and he prescribes a medication and you walk right over to the pharmacy and you get your thing and you go home and you feel relief. Uh, um, we need something. and I mean, we, we, we need something. So we look on Amazon and we, we see that it's not prime and it's going to take three days to get here and we pout about it. I mean... Um, if, if we would call a third world country an underdeveloped country, I would say we live in an overdeveloped country. We live in an overdeveloped place where life is so easy that it causes us to, to, to struggle with the supernatural things of God. We, don't, we think we don't need God. We think we don't need God to work miracles in our life so often. And so our, our prayer life is, is lackluster. We pray half hearted prayers at more out of devotion than really recognizing and understanding a need. We we place our, our hope and our trust in, in doctors and medicines and lawyers and politicians. Man, we're stupid, aren't we? Um in in, you know our protection is, is from law enforcement and, and cops or our protections from fires, from firefighters, and so we live in this world where we don't depend on the supernatural. We don't need the supernatural. We de- we depend on the physical. We depend on the 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 science, and so we struggle with this idea of the supernatural. But I want you to understand something: Christianity is based the, the very center of Christianity is the most supernatural moment in all of history. That literally, we believe that a man named Jesus was God's son. Was sent to the earth, who lived a perfect and spotless life, who never sinned, who knew no sin who took on the sins of the world, who paid our sin debt though he owed none, was crucified on a cross, put in the ground, was dead, and was raised to life on the third day. We believe in a supernatural moment where a dead man comes back to life to save people who hated him. There's nothing more supernatural than the resurrection of Jesus. And so then when we look at the New Testament, we kind of look at the Old Testament and shrudge and go, that was the Old Testament. Look at the New Testament. Look at the book of Acts. Look at the power of God for salvation to those who would believe. Look how God moved and would go on their behalf. And I'll tell you, I believe that that same supernatural God is still working in the same way. That it is God who grants salvation. That when we take our hard hearts in this world, and we turn and we soften our hearts, and we believe in the Lord Jesus, that it is the Lord doing a supernatural work in us. That we're when we are rebelling against God, we're in rebellion. We have hatred towards us. When the world around us is screaming, there is no God. Or this is the God. Or all these things are demanding of our worship that we turn from those things and we worship God. We can see that God is opening up the hollow places in our heart. And in the wellspring of his living water rushing up through it is a miraculous work of God. But yet again, we see that Samson's strength of the supernatural work of God We see that salvation is a supernatural work of God in us but then again here we are we're going to have to reconcile again God using a sinner to save his people Samson is quite the sinner quite the savage we see him strong but he's definitely weak he's got a lot of weaknesses his biggest weakness is lust it's sexual impurity uh, what, what we see, I mean, uh, that we should, I, I think, as a culture, as the people who live in America, live in this culture, we should see that sexuality is a weakness, that we idolize it, that that in in the world that, that we live in, and it, it, that that we worship sex and sexuality, that we're confused about sex and sexuality. This is this is Samson. Samson is is, is his wife dead? He goes up to Gaza. He goes and he's with a prostitute. Um, we see there, like, so it's again just showing that the, the biggest chink in his armor is women. Uh, they surround Samson, the the place after uh, the you know the the brothel or whatever it is. They ambush him, um, they tie him up, they put him in jail. He like basically leaves, takes the doors, drags him out of the city, shakes his fist at him. After that, it says that he loves a woman in the valley of Surak whose name was Delilah. That's what it says, verse 5. And the Lord of the Philistines came up to her. He's fallen in love with this woman. He loves her. Seduce him and see where his great strength lies. And by what means we may overpower him. That we may bind him to humble him. And he will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. And so they're just buying her loyalty. She's loyal to the Philistines. She's not loyal to him. He loves her. She does not love him. So she says to him, tell me where your great strength lies. Tell me, tell me what's your secret sauce. What's your silver bullet? What's, what's giving you this strength? And so he goes on with her and toys with her and tells her several things. And every time um, he, he, he tells her this thing, she, she basically finds out that it's not true until she starts playing the card. And this is the chink in his armor. This is the same thing that happened with, with the first wife. And She says in verse 15... How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You've mocked me these three times and you've not told me where your strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. And so she goes and she tells him what happens. And so we skip down a little bit. We see that she gets him to fall asleep on her knees and she calls in a man. He comes in. He shaves off the locks of his head. Then she began to torment him. And his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistine seized him and gouged out his eyes. And brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground out the mill in prison. So we see the Lord's strength leaves him. And here's the big idea that I want you to see. You can have the gifts of the Spirit... Without walking in the fruits of the Spirit. You can have the gifts of the Spirit without walking in the fruits of the Spirit. Now, this is obviously we're taking the New Testament and we're helping we're letting the Bible we're letting Scripture interpret Scripture here. We're letting the the, the New Testament be the lens in which we're seeing the Old Testament. And so we see God's anointing, we see God's power, God's spirit on Samson, but we see him not living as God would have him live, or God has, has called him to live. This is the, the, the same truth that we go back up to say that God uses sinners for his glory and our good. I want you to think about when we read the Apostle Paul. So think about, think about Jesus. Think about Jesus' nature, Jesus' character, character. Think about what Jed Kestner read to begin the service in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, right? The, that um, if you have not love, you have nothing. That, that the Christian ought to possess love. We know that a New Testament Christian has the Spirit of God working in them. So they, they're, they're told, told to walk by the Spirit. This is also Paul, this is in Galatians. Listen to his description and see how much of this matches up with Samson's life. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, enmity, drunkenness, and orgies, and things like these. That sounds more like Samson, doesn't it? I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things... There is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us walk also by the Spirit. Let us, become con- let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And so we see the very attributes that Samson lived out were not those that the Christian ought to live with. That God used this great sinner. I want you to understand something. You, you, when you read Hebrews chapter 11, you're going to read, we call it, often call that the hall of faith. And these people who had great faith. Remember, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson, the author of Hebrews, did not have time to talk about. Um, but they were there, showing that they're, they're flawed men. You, you read of Moses or Abraham, Noah, I mean... Noah being a drunk. Moses being a murderer. You see the lack of faith in many. You see that the Lord used broken sinners for His glory. We read after uh, the New Testament. We read church history. And what do we see? That that men often had the gifts of the Spirit. Had the, the power of the Spirit. But didn't walk in the Spirit. We see it still happen. Often... Read somebody, something that Jonathan Edwards wrote, and I'll read Jonathan Edwards, and I'm like, man, that is incredibly brilliant. That's one of the most Christ honoring things that I've ever read, written by a man who owned slaves. And you go, at least in that way, was he not? He was not walking with the Spirit. And so my my point today would be to show you that we ought not to just. Use our gifts, but we ought to walk in the fruit of the Spirit. And the first one is love. And so we look at the life of Jesus. We think of how Jesus was the Savior. What was the, the first thing that we're going to see about Jesus is that for God so loved the world that he gave his Son. That whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That love would be one of the first things, the things that would define how we view and see Jesus and how we as Christians live our life. That means you, you're not going to go catch foxes and set them on fire to get revenge this afternoon. You're not going to take a jawbone of a donkey and kill somebody this afternoon. That our ethic is different. That if someone, someone slaps you, you turn the other cheek. You don't seek revenge. That, that, that someone wrongs you, that you forgive them, that someone hates you, that you love them. A Christian ought to walk in the Spirit. Let's keep reading. Verse 22 But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand. The ravager, ravager of our country, who has killed many of us, and when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entered them. They made him stand between the pillars. Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me fill the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there, about 3,000 men and women. They looked on, as Samson entertained. Verse 28. Only the second time we see Samson pray or call to God. And Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, and his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house of the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtal in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel twenty years. Here's the last big truth I want you to see today. Is that God uses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. Now, I u- again use the Apostle Paul's words. But there's this great truth. And we look at Samson and we see a strength. That he was a weak man. The 3,000 stood up there and let him entertain them They saw that... His weakness had had left, but they did not see that God was going to use and work through them to bring judgment on themselves, to stop the oppression, to bring relief. And so Samson, the sinner, the savage, is a savior in the moment when he brings down the building, is willing to die to get revenge. There's two eyes. And he brings this salvation uh, to the people of Israel. Now, here's what we really see. Remember, this is this is this is showing something else in the Bible. And what this is showing us that Jesus is the better Savior. That Jesus would also die. He would also sacrifice his life. But he, he wouldn't do it out of revenge. He would do it out of compassion. He would do it out of love. Though we had sinned against him, though we had rebelled against God, he would break down the walls of Satan and sin and shame. He would take the wrath that we deserved and he would put it on himself that the man who knew no sin would become sin so that we might experience the righteousness of God. We see that God uses the weak things in the world. Just as they looked down on Samson, so did the world look down on Jesus. The, the, the world looked down on Jesus. I think of just as they were looking down on Samson. Not just in his death, but in his whole life. He didn't come as a, as a, as a king, but he came as a servant. He didn't come to, to, to have himself served, But he came to serve. And to give his life. As a ransom for many. That he didn't come. For revenge. He, he came to save. For compassion. And though the Lord said he was. Uh, the, the world said he was weak. The Lord used the weak man. To save. The one who didn't come. Um, with a sword. Who didn't come with an army. That came with a with a bunch of vagabond, ragamuffin disciples, and he used them to change the world. God uses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. God uses the things that the world looks at and laughs at to change it. And he did it in Jesus. That same supernatural power that God used to raise his son from the dead, will today, God will use to save you. The Bible teaches us this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised his son from the dead, you will be saved. Today as we read about this sinful, savage judge, let it make us turn our eyes to Jesus, the sinless Savior. Father, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for your word and that it's true. And Lord, may we not just read it, may we heed it. May we live by it. Lord, we thank you for the examples that you give us in Scripture that point us to you, that help us to see you clearly, that help us to see our own depravity, our own willingness to rebel. Lord, let us see clearly today that we need a Savior. And Lord, let us believe in you as Savior. Father, move and work in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe you're here today and you've never believed in the Lord Jesus for salvation. It clearly tells us in his word, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you place your faith and trust in him, he'll save you. Today, in a song of response, let's cry out to the Lord.